Hello and welcome to Cineworld What's On. I'm Luke Owen. I'm Ollie Davis. Hey, how's it going? Back together again doing the podcast. Yeah, we can talk about movies. We can indeed, yeah. And also, hey, if you're listening to this podcast, check this out. Because not only are you getting this extra podcast bit here at the start, you get another one at the end. After that is over, we have got an exclusive interview with Edgar Wright. What? The director of Last Night in Soho. That is podcast exclusive content. That's a big get. Mm Mm-hmm, sure is. Edgar Wright, absolute hero. I interviewed him once. So I- How was he? Oh, just an absolute delight. It was hilarious as well because it was um, he was still the Ant Man director at that point. Wow! It was for the it was to promote World's End. Um, I think World's End coming out on DVD maybe, mm-hmm. and so he was there to promote the World's End. And we were in this hotel room, so it's me and like you know the other journalists that are there. And the person who was arranging the interview said like, okay, we're going to take you through to Edgar now, just so you know. He's not going to answer any questions on Ant-Man. And the reason for that is because he's got nothing to say about the subject. Because, like, there's no news on it. So there's no point in asking. And we were like, okay, cool. We sat down. So I sat down. Everyone set up their recorders and stuff. I set up my recorder. And the first thing I said to him was like, don't worry. We've already been told that we can't ask anything about Ant-Man. I mean, you know, joke about it. And then he basically answered a question about Ant-Man. <laughs> <laughs> so I was there in my head being like, oh, bro, I've got a news story out of this already. Yes. yes. See the title now. And one of the things as well, when you, you when you do interviews and junkets, things like that, it's quite uncouth, uncool to like, you know, fanboy a little bit mm. and sort of like fawn over the person. You're supposed to be there as a professional. You're supposed to be there to be like, I am professional, interviewing fellow professional, and we're going to conduct this in a professional manner. I, this is Edgar Wright, and I had just started dating the woman who is now my wife. So I thought, I'm going to do something to impress her. I, I want to do something to impress her. To like, you Ooh, know. So that's a big move. So I got my photo taken with Edgar Wright afterwards, and he signed a World's End beer mat that they were sort of like giving away as sort of like a promotional thing. And it said, to my, my wife's name, let's boo-boo Edgar Wright. What does boo-boo mean? It's from the World's End. It's like, you know, he said, um, the way they describe it in the World's End is that when they were doing English class, they used to have ex-pursued by a bear or something like that, which is a quote about like, let's get out of here. Mm. So they said, well, we used to shorten it down to, let's execute by a bear, let's yogi, let's yogi and boo-boo, let's boo-boo. I don't remember that. No? Are you, are you mean you should I remember Smashy Smashy uh, <laughs> Eggman. Yeah. Nothing we've thought of is better than Smashy Smashy Eggman. Ah, <laughs> oh, what a movie that gets better on rewatches. I one of the I wrote an article for a website that you and I uh, used mm. to write for about um the real meaning of the World's End pubs. You know, how it like tells the story. We actually talk about this a little bit when we get to mm. last night in Soho in the, in the episode itself about how he tells stories through foreshadowing and stuff. So I wrote this whole thing about like, you know, my theories as to why each of the pubs had the names they were, because a lot of them are quite obvious. Someone left a comment being like, you're an idiot. These are all pubs from his local area. That, and like, and he said that in interviews, you're, you've completely misread the situation. And I was like, no, these are definitely. And then like when <laughs> the DVD came out, like either the Blu-ray came out and in that he's just like, yeah, they're all like all the pub names foreshadowed the event. And I wanted to go back to that article and reply to that guy because I would know he'd get an email notification to say someone has replied to your blog post comment. Be like, ha ha. So on the Blu-ray commentary, Edgar Wright says, and I quote. So what you're saying there is you've, t- you've just told a story where Luke Owen had the last laugh. Oh, I had the last laugh. <laughs> now get out. I just remembered the world's end was my, mine and my lady partner's first film we saw together eight years ago. Was it really? Yeah. Uh, foolishly, it was our first date. We'd already hooked up, but this was our first date. And we went to go and see because it was out and I really wanted to see it. And you know, when you're really into movies, so into movies that you forget social norms. And usually, a first date, you want to get to know the person. You want to chat to them. You don't want to sit in a film for ages and be completely silent. Mm -hmm. So not only did I do that, I was just like, well, what should we see? We should see a film that looks good and I want to see because I've got good taste. Captain Phillips. Is that what it's called? Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the the Tom Tom Hanks. One of the most stressful tense movies I've ever seen. I'm the captain now. Yeah. 
Thankfully, I bought the tickets. It was at actually the Cineworld Leicester Square. No, Cineworld Trocadero before it was oh, redone really? as the, the picture house. And uh, I lost the tickets. <gasps> in, in the half hour between buying, like, buying them, playing air hockey downstairs, <laughs> and then going into the cinema. That, that's good first date material. Though. Yeah. Did I you lost win? the tickets. Uh, I think I did. <laughs> Got to assert dominance. And I was like, I had an argument with them. I'm like, I literally bought it. Here's the receipt. And they're like, we can't give you the tickets back. <gasps> I was like, this is, and I, you know, I made a scene in front of this girl that I liked on her first day. And I was like, well, sh should we go down the road to another cinema? And the world's ends on there. I know that. Should we watch that? And she's like, okay, please, yeah, okay, let's do whatever you want. Thank God we did. Because <laughs> it's so funny and a much better first date movie. All right. Well, these are the comments I want on this week's uh, YouTube video. <laughs> what are your awkward cinema date experiences? Yes. Because I, uh, I I took a girl to go see Resident Evil, which I'd already seen because mm. I had a... I'd, I'd seen it in a naughty way. I'd got, uh -oh. Someone had given me a bootleg DVD of it. So, but I I wanted to go, you know, see it at the pictures so you can see it at the big screen and all that stuff because I love the Resident Evil games, right? So I took this girl that I like to go and see it, and she was scared through the movie. She was like, like cowering mm. away from like the scary things that would happen on screen, and I would look at her, be scared, and I would go, <laughs> scared, stupid. Later on, when I was telling my friend about this, he was like. No, she wasn't scared. She was pretending to be scared so that you would put your arm around her oh, so yeah. that you would like protect her and stuff. But I just laughed at her. <laughs> uh, and it, we, we didn't go on a second date. It, 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 it didn't exactly work out, really. That's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. But who got the last laugh? <laughs> I'm married now and I've got a kid. Uh, let's get into the main show itself and we'll return with your comments on last week's YouTube video. Here is the show. Before we get into that, shall we have a quick discussion about, well, we'll watch the trailer for Lightyear first, I suppose. But I did want to like paint a little picture for you because Ollie came into the studio today and he said, what are we going to do for the Cineworld show? And I said, we're going to do a reaction to the trailer for Lightyear. And his first question was, what's Lightyear? I assumed it was just some, probably an animated film about a boy getting a car and racing in a local race. You even said to me, is that worthy of a title and thumbnail? And I was like, yes, it is. But you you didn't know that they'd announced this a couple of years ago. Well, that now since since we've started talking and I saw the title of the trailer as Disney's Lightyear, my mind has started to put two and two together. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, finally, <laughs> Ham is getting a solo movie. <laughs> ah, well, you see, this is, it's not what you think it is. Oh. So let's um, let's let's watch the trailer and uh, and I think you'll find out. Okay. Spaceman. Buzz Lightyear. I, you know, I'll say it now. I'll, yeah. I'll yeah, say yeah, it. Yeah, Buzz Lightyear. Buzz Lightyear. Toy Story. Yes. So, in a rocket. That's definitely the face of Buzz Lightyear. Mm. Bit younger. Maybe. That's, Different yeah. helmet. And he's going off on a little space adventure, it would seem. It's just gone into hyperdrive. To infinity and beyond, you might suspect. He's confined to the sun! This is what they do in Star Trek IV, <laughs> The Voyage Home. They time travel by going around oh, the sun. Bit of Bowie. Bit of Bowie. Love a bit of Bowie. Oh, it's weird seeing Lightyear's hair. Like to come well, that, and meet us. That looks very Star Wars Eight Empire Strikes Back. There's a Starman. It's a flurgan. Well, I love the strings 
for mm. the Bowie cover. Zerg! <gasps> there's oh, the there's outfit. the actual outfit. La, okay. la, 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 la. Oh. So we're going to get to see the whole... In what they call... Well, well, this is where the interesting part of this comes in. Because that is not the story of Buzz Lightyear the toy. This is the story of the man who was the inspiration for the Buzz Lightyear toy. Mm. So Buzz Lightyear was a real person. And then they made a toy based on him and Emperor Zerg and all of the like Lightyear stuff that it's sort of based upon this real life story. We're going to need to rewind a bit here. Uh, first off, Buzz Lightyear is not a toy. <laughs> no, you're right. He's an action figure. He's, an, he's a person. <laughs> no, he's not. He's an action figure. He's he, a person. He realizes that he's a toy. Come on. Now. This this rewrites the Toy Story quadrilogy. I don't think me. it really. Five? Were five in the end? No, there was four in the end. Foot quadrilogy. Because what this says to me is Buzz was right all along. <laughs> he was the spaceman. Well, I mean, yeah, he, we're yeah. going into a world where toys exist and talk to each other when they go out the when people go out the room. And you're you're saying, no, that couldn't be the literal Buzz Lightyear. Well, it's not the literal Buzz Lightyear. He is a toy. Woody literally says to him, you are a toy. Because Woody and thinks he's a toy. And at the end of the movie, Buzz realises that he is a toy, but that's okay. Buzz is coming from a different dimension. No. That Buzz is from a different dimension. Is this your theory? Where he is real. <laughs> no, he's not. And he goes into another dimension so, where he is convinced that he's a toy, because in that dimension, he is a toy. It's a, like, you know, he's on TV. Are you telling me? Are you telling me? Like Greg Wallace now. Are you telling me? that you think the plotline of this movie is that a real-life person called Buzz Lightyear goes on some adventures, and at the end of the movie, he's going to go through some trans-dimensional warp, and he's going to end up in a another universe where there is no real-life Buzz Lightyear, but there are Buzz Lightyear action figures, and he is an action figure, which is why he's like, but guys, I'm not a toy. I'm actually Buzz Lightyear. It brings a horrifying edge <laughs> to the Toy Story quadrilogy we grew up on. Yeah, okay. Yes. No, that is exactly what I'm saying. In the in the style of Quantum Leap, uh, again. Everything on this show comes back to Quantum Leap. Or, I don't know, what's a Farscape? Or uh, loads of comic book stories. <laughs> So, like, is, mean, there a, is there a Star Trek <laughs> reference you can give me? Well, I gave you one. Oh, no, but I'm they, after they another. They flew round the sun to get to the 80s and See, save the whales. I thought you were going to say it's a bit like sunshine. You know, like where it's like, the sun's dying. We need to drop a bomb into it to restart the sun. Yeah, it checks out. <laughs> it really does, doesn't it? So you've given me your argument for why my theory isn't right. So let me propose back to you. Mm -hmm. You're telling me that Disney wants to start making episodic standalone movies. That, that is probably what I'm suggesting. I'm also going by, you know, Disney's own logline for the movie, which is find out the story of the real life person who inspired the toy that we then loved in the Toy Story films. Swerve. It is calm. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks, JJ. Let's trust the marketing for a movie, <laughs> sure. Honestly, this, this is big because, yeah, Toy Story is now a horror movie. Oh, I mean, so... You because you don't remember this film got announced. No, I, do, I do now, I yeah, do now, yeah. but I forgot, yeah. Do you know who voices um, Buzz Lightyear in this? Wait, Chris Evans, it's right? It's Chris Evans, yeah. yeah. And I'm excited for that, but like, I remember when the movie got announced and Chris Evans had to put out that tweet that was just like, guys, this isn't about Buzz Lightyear toy, this is about the real life person who inspired the toy. And that tweet is now sort of going around for people being like, I feel really sorry that actors have to like explain this sort of thing to people. Real serious actors have to be like, guys, let me let me lay out the plot line for you just so you're all clear. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to offend anybody who takes the, the Tim Allen version exactly. as that they'll have to do the voice forever now. It's changed. You've got to think though, in this in our Toy Story world that we're living in, why do you think that they changed the voice? of, you know, when they, they made the, the toys, maybe this Buzz Lightyear never comes back, which is why they couldn't get him to record the ba -ba -da -ba Buzz Lightyear to the rescue. And they had to hire in another actor to provide the voice for him. Okay, so yeah, you're kind of the, the production issues behind the cave well, that, Buzz the Lightyear show. That's the next chapter I want to see. I want to see <laughs> the board meetings about the making of the toy and the various different iterations they went through with the toy. Well, we kind of went through this in Toy Story 2, <laughs> which is, you know, a comment on 
a TV show getting cancelled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the toys being very valuable after the fact. But that was for Woody. We didn't get to see yeah. it for, for old Buzz. So, in... Hmm. Okay, well, first of all, I love the trailer. I thought the... Just as a, as a trailer, as a piece of art, I thought the, the Bowie music was fantastic. All the little scenes and references to other films. There was obviously the Empire Strikes Back kind of shot in the woods and swampy area as well. I thought it was very well done. Brought that sort of Disney trademark magic to it. But in the Toy Story films, I'm just trying to, you know, go theory mad. We have had loads of examples of imaginative toy plane sequences. Oh, okay. I, I see, I think I see where you're going with this. So we've had the the Western with Woody and is it Mr. Potato Head or yeah, Ham? Yeah, who yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, evil, all that sort of stuff. The evil players. Yeah, the, the start of Toy Story 3. Yes. So The start of Toy Story 2 is sort of a similar thing, but so it's in playing the video game. Potentially, this is of a child that you could, you could explain this whole standalone film as the child's imagination playing with a Buzz Lightyear toy. So what you're saying is they're just going to copy what the Lego movie did a few years ago. Spoilers for the end of the Lego movie. To echo what you said, mm. I love the trailer. Yeah, thought that was a really, really cool trailer. I actually was on board with the idea of this anyway, because I think it's quite a cool concept to go with. I can understand why some people might be like, Lazy Disney, just you know, trying to capitalize on IPs. But I would rather they do this than another Toy Story movie. Yes. So I think this is actually way more interesting of an idea than it's being given credit for. Yeah, because as much as like I love Toy Story four. In fact, like Toy Story as a franchise probably has the highest quality of any franchise ever. Easily so. Four yeah. incredible movies. Yeah, yeah, back to back with no with no dud in there. Yeah, Star Trek can't say that. Well, come on. I mean, we're talking about something other than Star Trek, and you're just bringing that up. But with this, yeah, I, I don't want to see another Toy Story movie, but I do still love the characters, so this is a great way to satisfy both. It's a great sleight-of-hand trick, I think. Yeah, plus I also I love Chris Evans, mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I do miss him as Captain America. <laughs> so this is kind of a way for me to sort of have a different Captain America. Space Captain! Space Captain America! That's the way forward. But that's off in the future. Let's look at what we've got coming out this weekend, including a film that I am so excited mm. to see. I haven't had a chance to see this yet. I know it was done at like the London Film Festival and stuff, and there have been some screenings for it. I still haven't seen it. I am going to go see it this weekend, though. Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. So way back when, Laurie and I did like a trailer reaction to this on What's On on Cineworld, and I said it was like, it's one of the coolest trailers I've ever seen. And I am so stoked to see this movie. And what's made me even more excited to see this movie is that some of my friends have seen it and didn't like it because they, they, they were just like, no, I didn't get it. They tried some things and I just didn't really get it. And then I saw Alan Jones, one of the co-founders of Fright Fest, say it's one of my favorite films of the year. It's got real Dario Argento vibes. And I was mm. like, that's why no one liked it because no one got what Edgar Wright was going for. My friends are idiots. Alan Jones is a master. <laughs> I'm so excited to see it now. On top of that, the marketing team and Edgar Wright himself, everyone who seems to have seen the movie, is like, there is a twist in this film. Don't tell anyone. Yeah. And it's a great little sales tactic. But it also, I don't, you know, one of Edgar Wright's tropes is that he tells you what's going to happen in the movie. Up front. In the first 10 minutes. Oh, you know, it's, it's quite, if you've not seen this, go back and watch films. In the opening 10 minutes, a character... You, you, I mean, you probably should have prefaced that Edgar Wright films. You just said then, if you don't believe me, watch films. Watch any movie. <laughs> watch any it's film called ever. foreshadowing. It's a very effective <laughs> storytelling technique. But yeah, he just lays out exactly what's going to happen beat by beat, really. And one character's... Um, like, the, by, via the names of a pub in World's End. Yeah, or quite in, famously, um, Nick Frost tells you the plot of Shaun of the Dead when he's laying out, here's what we're going to do tomorrow. Mm. We're going to have a, a bite of the king's head and this, that, and the other, and they did it, did it, did it. And that is literally the plot of the film. Yeah. So for that to 
for there to be such a big twist, a sort of mousetrap style twist that you're not supposed to tell other people about once you've seen it. And it's a filmmaker of Edgar Wright's talents. Oh, I'm so excited for this. Yeah, I, I'm, I love the style of it. I have seen, like the, the, the trailer is so great and I'm, I'm super stoked to see it. Like I didn't, I didn't really need to see any reviews going into this because mm. I already knew that this sort of film is the sort of film that I'm gonna love. Kind of similar with the other big release we've got this week, Antlers, which is a film I didn't know a whole lot about. It's a Fox Searchlight movie. And I saw the trailer for it and I was like, all right, yeah, I'm on board for this. I was actually chatting to a friend of mine yesterday and I was asking him, I was like, what's your favorite subgenre of horror movie? And he said to me, I love a horror movie that's got like a mad animal in it. <laughs> and this is a movie with a mad animal in it. What's top mad animal horror movies? Well, for him, it's Creature from the Black Lagoon. Okay. But like, you know, a like classic a monster. A classic, you know, a classic, um, any shark based movie is like mad animal is going. You okay. Know. So it's like something on this like <gasps> Lake Placid. A great deep blue sea. Giant sea. shark. Deep blue sea is a great example of like mad animal yeah. movie. This looks like a great mad animal movie. And I loved the trailer for this. Yeah, produced by Guillermo de Toro as well. So it's got very big horror pedigree chops. But those aren't the only films that you can check out this week because you can also go and see Dune on IMAX 4DX super screen. Venom, Let There Be Carnage, which is also available in Screen X. My pick from last week, The Boss Baby 2 Family <laughs> Business. Ron's Gone Wrong, The Addams Family 2, No Time to Die, and Halloween Kills. Of those releases, I know uh, for a fact that you went to go and see one of them. So how was Boss Baby 2? Boss Baby 2, IMAX, Leicester Square. <laughs> it's the only way to see it, guys. You want, you want the Boss Baby and the biggest boss screen possible. I mean, peeling back the curtain somewhat, me and producer Rich went to a Cineworld earlier this week for, you know, Cineworld business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we were taken into a screen that was about halfway through Boss Baby 2. And the guy was like, okay, well now we need to go. But I was like, yeah, but I could just, I could, ju next? I could just stay here and watch the rest of Boss <laughs> Baby 2 though, couldn't I? No, I saw June in the Leicester Square Cineworld, which has got the huge IMAX screen. Massive it is. I, because you know, it's been two years since I attended an IMAX screening. I walked in and I just went, <laughs> you know, just to like, sorry, sort of thrust at the camera. But I was you trying to get it out. Like, oh my God. <laughs> I mean, that kind of did happen as well. Showing. No, I, was I maxed to, out now. <laughs> trying to show how big the screen was. It disorientated me for a moment. I felt like I was going to trip over backwards. But yeah, it's, I read, I read this week that 50% of the ticket sales for June, at least in the US, have come from premium screen formats, which is stuff like IMAX 4DX. And this sounds, so, it sounds like such a cliche. It's the only way to see it because this is a big freaking movie. There's a YouTube channel called Every Frame a Painting. And that's kind of the idea that every composition in a film is beautiful and means something. And when you, you know, a lot of thought has gone into that stuff. I cannot think, well, actually, the French Dispatch, which also came out this week, is, is also very, like, attention to detail. But this is one of the most biggest, visually stunning films I've ever seen. And I'm glad I saw it on the IMAX. It's not just the size of the screen that makes an impact. It's Hans Zimmer going, Bwam! Unfortunately, you. we missed that out for the poster quote as well from mm. Ollie Davis, most biggest movie. It's the most biggest film <laughs> ever. <laughs> on the first 20 minutes, there were, there were legit moments where my mouth had opened like that. And I, I was honestly like that. And I catch myself, close my jaw wow, in, really? a, in a silly kind of comic book way because it's just spaceships. <laughs> it's just spaceships landing very, very slowly and people walking out of the spaceships looking really cool. So are, we, are you trying to tell me, are you telling me, going back to my Greg Wallace one, are you telling me that this is Star Trek the motion picture, but good? Well, because that, that, is, that is a film, there's a lot of slow moving spaceships landing and people There's a lot to them. unpack there. <laughs> the motion picture Star Trek, of course, you can miss a lot of the film. It's not a dense film, it's just a long film. <laughs> 
But what, what June is, is it's dense because you cannot miss a second. <laughs> if you like, I don't know, go to the toilet, you're not catching up. You just, you just got to leave. Yeah. You've got to, it's a two and a half hour movie and a lot is crammed into that two and a half hours. And it's only part one. Yeah, they announced part two for it. Now mm. Warner Brothers announced that we are getting the, the a June sequel, which I think was probably to be expected. Like I think if they hadn't done it, it would yes. have felt really weird. <laughs> but like, I remember when I, I saw um, the first June, uh, but like the, it was actually the second time I'd seen it. I'd seen it like once before on like VHS back in the day. And then I went to a very special screening of it. But I was also really tired. And I fell asleep, like, you know, you sort of close your eyes like a micro net. Mm. And I fell asleep for about three minutes. And I woke up and I was like, God, now I don't know what's going on. I haven't a single clue. Spice? <laughs> yes, I have no idea what's going Why on anymore. Why is it so important? So I feel like if I'm going to go, when I go and see June, because I'm, I'm planning to go and see it next week, I'm going to like load myself up on like caffeine have some sweets next to me, popcorn and everything, so I can like make sure that I'm mm. fully copus mentis mm. the entire time. Yeah. But also not too much that I have to go for a week. It's a difficult balance. It's one of the it's one of the biggest awe-inspiring films I've ever seen. Most biggest. Most biggest. Hey Ollie. Oh, yes. You're an unlimited card holder, aren't you? I am. Proud. Proud, oh, oh, proud as punch to be an unlimited card holder. And I get so much benefit from being an unlimited card holder because I get like money off my drinks and my sweets that I'm gonna need to make sure I stay awake during June. I also get unlimited screenings and all this sort of stuff. But sometimes I look at all of these great benefits and I think to myself, if only there were more benefits mm -hmm. on top of this. I'm never satisfied. No. But now there are more benefits because you now get a taste card as a previous unlimited card holder and new unlimited card holders. The taste, taste card, I used to have one back in the day. They are so useful. Well, yeah. You can get two for one meals at certain restaurants and you get 50% off on others. And for me, it's the two, from, two for one meals you want to seek out. Yeah, yeah. And you go there, date, sorted. They think you're really like, oh, wow, what a generous date. Look at me putting out my yes. extra card. <laughs> oh, yeah. And yes, let's go to the cinema too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, right. I am splashing the cash. Or you like, you know, having a date at home perhaps. Mm -hmm. And you think to yourself, I'm going to order in loads of pizza from, you know, Pizza Hut or Domino's. And your date comes around and be like, oh, my God, you're loaded with all of this money that you spent on this. But really, you and I like, <laughs> I got 50% off. Well, well, well. What? This is genuine. Yeah, yeah, you get 50% off Domino's and Pizza Hut orders. Are you freaking kidding me? No. <laughs> I'm seeing it in the notes yeah, yeah. now. 50% off Pizza Hut and Domino's. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, that, that's... That is... I'm... <laughs> I'm gonna make a lot of money back. I don't know how much money I spend on pizza a year. I know, yeah. Uh, okay, great. Well, that's fantastic. That's really good. That, that's, that's a really good offer. <laughs> that's not an act, folks. Like that is a that's genuine. A shoot that's reaction. a shoot reaction. I was already in. I'm already into the taste card idea. That I did not know that. movie that I'm super duper excited for. Pre-book your tickets for Marvel Eternals. Dude, I'm I'm, I'm so looking forward to this film. Uh, at the start of June, obviously there's trailers. Ghostbusters Afterlife. The greatest movie ever made. I, I <laughs> Already. Uh, something else, can't remember, and Eternals. And I've seen the Eternals trailer on, you know, on my phone or on my... Your iPod touch. Yeah, my iPod shuffle. I don't know if that's, you know, just... <laughs> the clip, the clip on one. Yeah. And... To see what Chloe Zhao has done for a Marvel movie, big special effects, you know, Nomadland is a gorgeous film to watch. And here is one unfolding in an IMAX screen in front of me with superheroes. I mean, what am I gonna enjoy more? People living out of their cars to work for, <laughs> in, in like seasonal jobs, which makes me feel sad, or superheroes I know, right? in an eternal war? Yeah, it's also, yeah. I mean, one of the things that made me really laugh from the last trailer is that there's a joke that you and I have done on the various film shows that we have done over the years, which is like, we're not going to give you spoilers for this Marvel movie. And then you'll say, can't believe Batman showed up. They literally reference Superman mm. in the Eternals trailer. I'm like, they're stealing our material now. 
and you've got two members of the Game of Thrones cast, Rob Stark and the John, other one, Jon Snow, <laughs> bringing them back together. And we've got loads of great films on at the cinema at the moment, but I also love a very special screening. And we've got some really cool ones coming up for you, including Blade in 4K restoration mm. on October 30th, the 20th anniversary screening of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone on the 29th to the 31st of October, and the 25th anniversary screening of Scream. I made a bold proclamation on last week's show, um, and I was thinking about this when you were talking about it with Dan as well. Blade is the first good Marvel movie. I can't think of any others, you're right. That's. Roger Corman's Fantastic Four never got a proper release because there was Captain America there was Nick yeah. Fury starring Dust, uh, oh, Dustin Hoffman geez, um, yeah. Dustin Hoffman no no uh, what's his name Michael Ryder <laughs> what's his actual name there was Hasselhoff Punisher movie as well there was there? yeah yeah that's with Dolph Lundgren yeah, yeah. so there's been, there were like loads of naff Marvel movies plays like the first good one mm. We've got some special unlimited screenings also coming up. On November 8th, we've got King Richard. And on Tuesday, the 23rd of November, Pirates. Pirates being a very fun looking uh, UK movie about like a group of friends getting into their, you'll love this, Peugeot 205, driving to a New Year's Eve party, listening to UK garage music. It's a time that I grew up in. Yeah. I didn't particularly grow up in that culture, but Reggie Yates is the man behind it. Yeah. As soon as I saw- interesting uh, career turn. As soon as I saw Peugeot 205, I was like, my friend, that was his first car, it was mm. a Peugeot 205. So it's right back to my teenage years. But the other one, King Richard is a very interesting movie. This is Will Smith's new picture. Mm. where And it's the true life story of the father that raised Serena and Venus Williams. And oh, like trained them to be like, you know, the great athletic champions that they currently are. Wow. Yeah. So yeah it's like, it's, it sounds like a really interesting movie. Like, you know, Venus and Serena Williams are like incredible. Mm. So I think this is gonna be a really cool film. First off, I would just like to thank everyone who left messages welcoming back uh, to the show last week. I did it with Dan. Uh, I believe it is the longest episode. How long did it end, end up being? 41 minutes. 42 Jesus. minutes. You taped for an hour. Taped for an hour. And, uh, uh, you know, there was, you know, trains going past and things like that where we have to yeah. edit around and stuff. Dan, I love Dan so much. He, he's more cardigan than man. He, uh, <laughs> well, I don't know because he's got that... That little tuft of chest and hair at the top he always yeah. sneaks out. It sexually shows Here's off. Here's man cleavage at the top here. He was talking about how that he's now completed the set of um, What's On. He's mm. done a virtual one. He sat in your seat <laughs> and he sat in my seat because you wouldn't let him sit in your seat when he did the show with you. And he was upset about that because he said that meant he would be exposing his worst side. Exactly. And I said, well, I don't have a bad side. <laughs> and and I, I usually sit here. That's what I, <laughs> and I said, Ollie and I, uh, we have done a lot of shows together of, you know, for like a decade or so. We always sit th this side. We are always, Ollie and Luke, we always sit in this yeah. way. We are Adam and Joe. We are Ant and Deck. This is how we sit. Well, it's meant to be Red, Luke and Ollie. It was a way to get you over. <laughs> I don't know if that ever was a good... Made sense at the time. I, I got over by because I never left. <laughs> um, but I wanted to thank everyone for all the comments uh, you left about welcoming me back. Oh, that's the point I was going to make about Dan. Dan said that he, it was his aim was to make this show an hour long. Because <sighs> he, he thinks it's too short at 20 minutes. Some people just want to watch the world burn. So thank you to uh, Lex Sells Merch and EGD Max for your comments. Uh, James Robinson said, absolutely love these videos. Very informative. And basically says what it says in the title. It's, like it's what's on. Yeah, exactly. What is on. And thank you very much for your messages as well. Thank you to Will's Real Talk for your message as well. And he loved seeing our reactions to... We watched a we did re trailer reactions to... The Batman mm. and The Flash. I loved the Batman trailer. I cannot wait to watch it. And me and Adam had a disagreement over this. You certainly did. It was like, it looks the same as the other Batmans. I'm like, it feels different. It feels like more modern comic booky. I can't, I can't, unfortunately, I cannot articulate the reason I think it's a great looking movie. 
I was I, I very much enjoyed the Batman trailer, mm. particularly for that end shot as well. There was a moment I was I was talking about this with uh, Which Russell. What's the end shot? Sorry, is where the the, uh, the Batmobile jumps through the fire stuff. The, the yeah. penguin screaming is like, Haha, I got you, I got you. That's an awesome shot when the camera is just static on the hood of the car looking back. Yeah, I, I'm really excited because it's, it's Matt Reeves, it isn't it? Is, yeah. Oh, yeah, like it's gonna be a awesomely directed film. I was talking with um, so we, uh, if you aren't aware, Ollie and I do a wrestling podcast, and we have another co-host in that called um, Tempest. And I was talking with Tempest about this Batman trailer the other day, uh, yesterday, in fact, and he said to me, "The thing that excites him the most about this Batman movie is that it looks like an indie movie." And I was like, mm. "Tempest, that last shot of the movie is a big <laughs> budget action shot of a Batmobile running through fire." Yeah, I don't. Does Tempest know what indie movie means, or do you think he's heard it? You know, like how, oh, it's an indie band. You're like, well, no, it's a, it's a big record label <laughs> yeah, exactly. signed, overly produced hairbot band. But the, my favorite thing about it is, is that he said, well, what I love about this Batman movie is that unlike any other Batman movie, this one looks like an indie film. And I was like, Tempest, this is what we were saying on forums about Batman <laughs> Begins and, and The Dark Knight. Where were you in forums in 2006? And he was like, I was 10. I was like, oh, fair yeah, enough then. That's, that's a reason. I can't believe that people are still like, Oh, yeah, but I just can't see Robert Pattinson as Batman. And, like, even if you think that, personally, I think it's a cool choice. I think he's a very inventive actor, and I appreciate him trying to break out of other, the sort of stereotypical role he was casting at the start of his career. But wow, what a, to be Cedric Diggory in Harry Potter, to be Edward in Twilight, and now Batman. <laughs> he's got pop culture oh, down. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know how you can look at if anyone was cast as Batman at the moment. I don't think I've ever been disappointed by Batman casting once I've seen the film. Do you know what? I think even people are starting to reevaluate uh, Val Kilmer. Mm. Now, Val Kilmer was always the one who feels like, man, he was so boring as Batman. George Clooney was, I think, unfortunately miscast. He was cast because he's ER hot bods, yeah. George Clooney, so we need to put him in a big budget movie, right? With nipples. With nipples and the back credit card. But Val Kilmer, everyone was like, man, Val Kilmer was such a boring Batman. But do you know what people are starting to do now is reshare that scene he has with Robin, mm. where um, Dick Grayson is saying to us, like, let me be your partner. Like, man, going out there and doing that fighting with you, that was that was so exciting. That's what I've been looking for. Like, that's what I'm after. But, you know, when we get to Two-Face, I want to be the one that kills him. And Val Kilmer's Batman is just like, and then what? Mm. You've got your revenge on that, but it will never be enough. So you'll go looking for the next Two-Face and the next Two-Face and the Two-Face after that. And he has this amazing Batman speech that no one ever talks about from yeah. Batman Forever because there's like, hey, it's the terrible Batman movie. But it's actually a really good Batman speech. Batman Forever, who are the villains? I That's, get the last two mixed up. It's Two-Face and the Riddler. So it's Jim Carrey as the Riddler oh, and Tommy Lee Jones. And Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, Two-Face. I love that one. Yeah, it's yeah. real good fun. Also, great soundtrack as well. Mm. U2's Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. Sealed, kiss from a rose on the grave. Ooh. How are those songs for that movie, you know? <laughs> well, it was it was the 90s, wasn't it? So it was just yeah. any... I'm going deeper underground. underground. Yeah, that's just a song I'll write for Godzilla. Yeah, I just put a Godzilla <laughs> roar in there. And it's like, <laughs> on that soundtrack, uh, they have Green Day's Basket Case, which is from the Insomniac album. And it's called, brackets, the Godzilla remix. What that means is they just put Godzilla roars in it every now and again. Nice. It's it's the same song. But every now and again, it goes... What song couldn't be improved with a Godzilla roar? Well, apparently, Brain Stew got better uh, with that. So mm -hmm. maybe that's the uh, maybe that's the answer, is you you just put Godzilla roars over things. Can people send us in clips <laughs> of classic songs they've inappropriately put Godzilla roars into? And I guess if people... So long, Marianne. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you again to all the people who have welcomed me back. Very, very nice to see you say that. Uh, Chris says, I'm not sure how to say this, so I'm just going to say it. I've never seen any Batfleck movies. Well, there's not many of them. There's, well, technically three, I suppose. Yeah, Batman v Superman, Justice League, and his appearance in the Suicide Squad. Oh, he's in the end credits. They, right? Oh, they're right at, at the, the start. start. Right at the start. They show him um, arresting Deadshot. Wow. I don't remember that at all. I do remember him having an interaction with Waller, though. Is that in Batman v Superman or Justice League? Or maybe it's in Justice League? I don't remember, to be honest. The, the theatrical cut of Justice League. Hey, 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 hey. 
my DC Unlimited app because it's it's six months. It's where you can read comics, uh, but they're sort of six months out of the publishing date. Um, has just caught up with Brian Michael Bendis <gasps> starting his run on Justice League. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and are you are you excited by this? Because you and I have clashed over Bendis in the past. Oh no, I love Bendis. Yeah, and I it was, I think it's particularly his run on Daredevil that. I, and I agree with you. I think his run on Daredevil was great. His run on the Avengers was really quite bad. Oh, no, I like the Avengers run. No, I, yeah, that's where we did. Oh, because I, I didn't like his Avengers run. And I always highlight one specific issue that he had, mm. which is when it was after, I think they'd just finished the Heroic Age arc. And he had a he did an, a whole issue of the Avengers where they just sit around the breakfast table oh, yeah. and talk about how much they get paid for various things. So like the, the thing saying, I don't get paid as much for the Fantastic Four as I do being an Avenger. <laughs> and then Wolverine pipes in and he's like, oh, don't you talk to me, X-Men checks. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I was reading it and being like, why am I reading this? Why did you write this, Bendis? Let me tell you, Justice League, oh, it's solid. <laughs> yeah. I'm enjoying it. Good. And I think it's going to get really good two years from now. <laughs> you know those sort of things where you're like, oh, man, this is, this is solid. Yeah. But in two years... <laughs> It's gonna, they're setting up a lot of stuff that won't pay off for a very long time, and I'm there for it. Kind of like the MCU originally. Yeah, like, yeah. We, you know, because my wife and I were doing some MCU rewatches, and you watch Iron Man, you're like, oh man, Iron Man's really good, but oh man, it's gonna get real good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, we're gonna draw this to a close, but before we leave you, we have got an exclusive interview with Edgar Wright, the director of Last Night in Soho. One of my favourite directors, actually. I absolutely adore the man. So please do enjoy this extra bonus interview podcast exclusive and we'll see you next week with more What's On. Um, excellent. Um, it's, it's, such a, it's such a privilege to be able to to talk to you because your films have just imprinted on on me for well you know since like teenagers i i have um i think my first university film studies um screening was shawn of the dead actually thinking about it <laughs> yeah and Where did you go to university oh uh, west of england in bristol yeah. oh yeah well bristol's near where did you go to bristol university uh, no, no, just just to the, it was the fish ponds campus, but yeah, obviously because because you grew up in Wells, was that right? Yeah. Is it, oh. So as soon as yeah, I grew up in Wells, and and when I could drive for the first time when I was seventeen, you know, I so I you know there was a cinema in my hometown, but like when there were big films coming out, we'd go up to Bristol, mm. and like so White Ladies Road, um, yeah. is where I saw like E.T. and. Return of the Jedi and Superman 3 and then yeah. in the Broadmead and stuff but then then when I got a car then me and my friends would drive up to Bristol to go to the watershed yeah felt like a really adult thing to do and I remember <laughs> Barton Fink Delicatessen Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer I just remember like going to the watershed at age 17 and, and feeling like, oh, I'm like an adult now. <laughs> <laughs> that is now my second home, the watershed. I was there the other day. It's one of the best cinemas in the country, I think. It's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Watch, uh, Soho at the watershed. Uh, no, I saw that in London, actually. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, if, if only I could have seen it now, I might, I'll go back probably and, and see it there again. Um, but actually, well, that's a funny thing, because that well, I was going to ask about that. I mean, because I thought what Last Night in Soho did really well was because I'm a West Country boy. I'm from Devon originally. And where in Devon? At Torquay. So, yeah, yeah English that's Riviera. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the, the idea of the uprooting, the going from like the rural idyll to the big city, because I did that from Torquay to Bristol. And I, I wondered like how much of that was really well brought across with the characters like did you draw on like your own experiences of like going to London for the first time for the film oh for sure I guess it's like a combination of experiences and stuff and it's like I was happy to talk about this because sometimes people assume that everything in the movie is like a, a reference to a film but <laughs> I, I came from Somerset to London like my sister-in-law came from Cornwall to London and studied fashion at art college I went to art college mm. Christy came from like Glasgow to London my mum like uh went to art college and studied dressmaking and also like christy's mother and grandmother also did dressmaking and stuff but i think like my me, myself my brother my sister-in-law we all came from like the west country or the southwest to london 
and like you know london coming to the big city is like a really like forbidding experience at first if you have no money no connections like no friends you always feel like completely outstripped yeah. and that was something that i wanted to bring also i what something i find really heartbreaking in the movie because of the way thomason mckenzie plays it is it breaks my heart even in the first like 10 minutes of the movie is that Eloise is so happy and sure of herself in the opening minutes of the movie. And as soon as she gets to London, that kind of individuality is like snubbed out. Yeah. It's really sad. <laughs> it really breaks my heart. And that's, and in a way, that's the thing is like when she moves out of the halls of residence and finds the bedsit, she's already in retreat once. She's retreating from like modern life by going to this other room to beat, to recreate the experience of her bedroom at home of being on her own and then going back to the 60s is her second retreat so you've sort of got a character that's running away from modern life problems and and that's sort of how the story starts and how the problems start is that you're kind of like retreating away from you know trying to make it in the modern world well, that because because the film I thought was a very very interesting comment on nostalgia, the fact that nostalgia is kind of idealized, it's romanticized, and yet in the film it curdles, it curdles and it darkens, and it's about what's lurking behind the trappings of the, of the iconography that we all know and love. Like, was that always was that always like a bedrock of the script, or did that like evolve between between you and Christy like that element? I mean, the story was always like that, and and then you know. If anything, like sort of talking to Christy coming on board, obviously she brings a, a different perspective to it as well. But it was also, in some cases, it was like a validation of what was already in there because like she could speak to that from her perspective of being a young woman coming to London. And there are like bits of dialogue in the film, like the taxi driver dialogue or like the obscene pickup lines in a bar are just like, you know, I would say to her, what's the worst things people have ever said to you in London in the street? Mm -hmm. And, um, but beyond that, the stuff about kind of like the showbiz and the sort of, I mean, I'm glad you use the word curdled because it's always that sense. And I think, you know, in the last four years, the thing that changed is we, people, um, victims started to speak for themselves. And prior to that, there's a lot of darker stories of showbiz that would either be second or third hand stories, or even worse, they would be malicious gossip written by men like in sort of like books about the industry or just kind of like um and some there's something about that that I always found disturbing or, or the sense of those stories that for every like success story in show business there's like 99 people that didn't make it and some of those stories are really tragic and I would find myself in reading about that uh whether it was like showbiz stories or even just kind of crime stories of just about lives snuffed out or careers that didn't happen um i'd find myself kind of grieving uh for people that i didn't know um or like you know reading about cold cases and stuff just like it was something that would really like haunt me and um the first thing that i did when i vocalized the idea of actually making this as a movie is what it was just before i was making the world's end i we hired a researcher myself and Nara Park hired this researcher, Lucy Pardy, to sort of like just research things that were in the script or in the story already, but to sort of actually validate them with some real world answers. And, and that was both kind of like talking to historians and, um, and about kind of things that were actually recorded in the sort of the, in, in, in news, but then also with testimonials from people who actually were around at the time who lived and worked in Soho then and now. And those stories as a sort of almost as a validation of what, where I was already heading with it were incredibly sobering and disturbing to read. And when I gave this research document, which was like this thick to Christy, I said to her, I said, don't read it all at once. And I was a bit worried that it might put her off and it didn't, but she, you know, it was like incredibly dark stuff to read. But also, you know, she had worked in Soho for five years as a barmaid in the Toucan and had lived above um, a strip club on Dean Street, Sunset Strip, which is still there. 
And so she had her own stories and other things to bring to the table. So, you know, it was it was amazing to co-write with her because obviously then the film becomes kind of like a, a mingling of our perspectives. Well, yeah, that's really good because that on that point, it's also very, very loving towards the 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 era. I mean, Chung Hoon Chung's cinematography is just, just brilliant. And then just the sheer logistics of putting this period onto the screen with the Thunderball marquee banner and, and the Daimlers and the cars, like how much of a logistical challenge is that of just like lovingly putting that together? <laughs> I mean, it's just that it's ambi- ambitious is the word in terms of, they're shots that like are so ambitious. You're not quite sure whether you can pull it off until you're there on the day, mm. especially with that shot where, you know, we dressed the street, we had the period cars and the period extras and even a period bus. But, you know, like that particular shot was on the Haymarket, which is one of the busiest streets in London. And we had to give five months warning. We had to give like, had to, we were working with city of Westminster for five months for that shot. But you can't rehearse the shot until you're there. We actually had to rehearse the shot on an airfield a couple of Saturdays before. And so Thomas and Mackenzie, we had the Haymarket drawn out on an airfield. Yeah. We had cars and we would rehearse there. But, you know, on the actual street itself, it's like you have 10.30 to 2.30 and that's it. So, you know, those are the things where you're sort of like taking the ball by the horns of like, I don't know whether this is going to work, but we're going to go for it. And there's other shots later on in the movie, like there's another shot where matt smith is driving and taylor joy up frith street in a sports car and goes around the corner like from frith street into bateman street down to Breek street and it's all like dressed like the 60s and we we shot that in the middle of soho and it's like i can't even believe that we pulled that off like and i was there <laughs> amazing amazing well i mean the the i mean i always love the way that as a director you favor music because i'm a huge advocate of soundtrack music whether it's needle drops whether it's original score i always find i find it so fascinating the way music can be applied in a film and that in this you obviously have a balance between the classic 60s pop tracks and also stephen price's music as well which intermingles really well is that are those choices like written into the script, those mu- those musical directions, or is that more of an organic process? I've always wondered about that. The, this, the songs the songs are written in, or at least they're chosen for specific scenes. So, and sometimes like the, 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 the songs kind of are linked in with bits in the story before a word is written. Mm. I mean, in some cases like that Catherine de Paris sequence with, the, with this track by the Graham Bond organization playing, I would like hear that song and I would literally be able to visualize the scene, not dissimilar to Eloise having mm. that dream. It'd be like, I'd sort of like listen to the song and I'd be able to see those images. And then it's a matter of getting that onto the page in terms of Steve Price. What's amazing with him, because it's now like my fourth movie with him, I think. And um, is uh, yeah, anyway, Scott Pilgrim, he worked on it as a music editor and arranger. Um, we, he, 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 he read the script and he started doing bits of music based on the script. And what was amazing is that we had this suite called Neon. It was called Neon One. And it was like 15 minutes of music. And me and Paul Matchless, he gave us the separate elements. And so parts of it, we'd start stripping that apart. And sometimes we play it on the set in some sequences. Sometimes I audition some of the actors to Stephen Price's score. (laughs) So then when he watches the first edit, he goes, oh, wow, you guys are really like, you know got a lot out of this bit and then he and then he expands on that and then the other thing that's great with steve is that he's never he never gets precious about us using songs as well so he's able to build on that so one of the things i think is really nice and this is the case with baby driver as well is where his score builds out of a song and that's really just something i love because it's something where that it feels like the entire film is in the same key you know yeah, yeah, it's like consistency of like sort of like there's a methodology, I suppose, in a way. Yeah, it's like when songs are playing and then the score is starting. There's like a big scene, a sort of big confrontation scene where Barry Ryan's Eloise is playing, but obviously as things are getting tense, the score is coming in as well. But they're sort of they're kind of coexisting to a point where like you sort of like start to you maybe have forgotten that Eloise is kind of like. Is, is is quieter and something else has started yeah 
That's fine. I, 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 so fine. I, I didn't even until you said that. I was oh yeah, I remember. I, I subconsciously I must have registered that. I can only just remember it happening. Yeah. Um, well, the other thing. I mean, this is just my interpretation of it. I like the. Um, there's almost kind of like a ghostly Mr. Jamesy style, the past reaching out through to the present, which is something I always find really terrifying in like Mr. James and you know Walter Delamere and ghost story writers and everything. I wondered. Like, was there any were there any particular like, horror movies from like the sort of sixties period in that area that were an influence on, on this film? Like, well, in in some cases, it's it's um, in some cases, it's that idea of like, yeah, I like a message from the past trying to get into the future. I mean, there's that Nigel Neal TV movie from the seventies called The Stone Tapes, which oh. I always find fascinating because. <laughs> That's the idea in a way, it's not dissimilar, it's almost like a sort of a bit like the film Arrival where the idea is that the kind of the haunting is like linear, or, mm. or no, it's non-linear rather. The idea that somebody could be haunted by something that's happened in the future. That like, I love that, it breaks my brain, that one in terms of, um, and uh, what's funny actually is like, um, uh, I'm friend. I, I know uh, this is maybe too geeky, but like the opening song in the movie is by Peter and Gordon, and Peter is Peter Asher, Jane Asher's brother, and uh, I know his daughter, like Jane Asher's niece. And I said, "Oh," I said, and I remember talking to her, and she'd never seen the Stone Tapes. I said, "Oh, your your auntie's in like a great like horror TV movie." I mean, it's funny. There's another movie that's not a horror film that sort of was I I, I love that's like a good sixties one called Deep End. I don't know if you've ever seen Deep End with Jane Asher. No, it's not a horror film, but it's great from 1970, and it has amazing like Soho footage from like must have been shot in 1969. I mean, I guess like yes, it, to answer your question, like the Stone Tapes, and like I love like The Innocence. Obviously, is is like um just such a, a a beautiful movie in that sense. Um, and that's something where I feel like it's I I like I like the idea of where ghosts are trying to communicate with the present day. It's always something that it seems that because there's two sort of ways of seeing ghosts. And one is one is in the innocence and the other one is in the stone tapes. Mm -hmm. What like in the innocence is like the more traditional idea of ghosts that are souls that are left on earth in purgatory with unfinished business and that they are unable to get to the other side the afterlife because they have unfinished business and then the other theory that's kind of in the stone tapes and i happen to believe and is kind of more than one character repeat this idea in fact pauline mclean in the in the toucan she says something about the toucan being haunted by the good times there is that feeling that i have is that if you were in a if you were in a building that was like hundreds of years old or any any number of years old and a murder had occurred in that room would there be psychic residue left behind? Is there some semblance of the energy of a traumatic event left behind in a room? And I would think there is. I mean, I think like my mother, like I said, being somebody who's quite supernaturally switched on, <laughs> exactly that person who picks up on presences, is exactly that person who will sort of feel like a presence in a room and then do her research and say, oh yes, the former owner committed suicide in this, in this room. Like that, that's the mother that I grew up with. So I, I believe, I believe that. And I, I, you know, I just, I believe, I mean, I think sort of, even if you were not like sort of thought that it was all like science fiction hokum, the idea of like a murder leaving some kind of trace yeah. behind the air is like, of course, it, you know. It's almost like imprinted on a particular, and it's like, no, I'm not going to stay in that room. I'll, can you, can I stay in another one? <laughs> can, I, can I stay in another room, please? <laughs> London itself is, 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 is a place of ghosts. And like, you know, like we say in the movie is like Diana Rigg says that line of like, this is London. Somebody's died in every room and every building in this whole city. I believe that. Yeah. And in yeah. Bristol. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Lots of, yeah. Bristol lot, has its ghosts. Yeah, lots, lots of um, maybe, maybe not so much in Cabot Circus. That might be a little bit too much, but in, in the more in the more historic areas, yeah, like yeah, Clifton, Redland, yeah, um, yeah. Um, oh, okay, this has been amazing. So I've talked about I've talked ghosts, I've talked music, I've talked sixties. This is this is this has been awesome. Thanks so much. <laughs> it's like um, sort of my favourite topics. Oh, by the way, my my mum has just sent me a message saying, can can I pass on that she absolutely adores Baby Driver and she adores. Uh, 
because <laughs> um, that music was her generation. So she absolutely loved that that film. So um, yeah, she she's she started to pass that honestly. Um, but um, brilliant. Um, I think yeah, I think I've got the the in message wrap up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sean. Thanks so much, Sean. Yeah. Thank you for me.